Tiffany, maybe a bit of concern. It's like, why, why do you have an American flag in your church auditorium? Uh, are you, do you guys somehow equate the American flag with worship of God? No, the answer is no. And, and I thought about that. I'll tell you the real story why we have an American flag in our auditorium. Part of it is because of my upbringing. So I grew up in the household of Chief Baker, a career Navy guy, right? I was that kid growing up. And I, I know this, that that flag means something to him that it probably doesn't mean to me because of his experiences. And for those of you who have served uh, in the military in our country in some way, that's probably true of you. You know, it's Veterans Day, and we want to acknowledge that. If you've served, would you just stand up so we can say thank you to you for the ways that you have helped us to enjoy the freedoms that we have? <clears throat> Perhaps the same question would be, why would we acknowledge Veterans Day in a worship service? Is there something? No. And my, my philosophical, this is culture. That's all this is. This is American culture. In fact, you'll notice that we have way more than one flag. This started, by the way, probably in like 1999, uh, the first year that I was pastor. We had Colonel Murdoch come and speak here. He was the uh, the the director of chaplaincy ministry for our national network of churches. And we support, we're so grateful for the chaplaincy ministry and all that it entails. And I'm sitting up front with Colonel Murdoch and he leaned over and he's like, hey, Tim, where's your flag? And I'm looking around and I'm like, where did it go? I, I, I'm not sure, somebody must have moved it. And what I found is I was probably confusing the fact that Awana had a set of flags, which was different than having a set in the auditorium. And I felt so bad in front of Colonel Murdoch that I went ahead and ordered a, a proper American flag for our auditorium so that next time he came, I wouldn't be shamed, right? Um, and I was so glad I did because the next year when 9-11 happened, guess what? You couldn't find a flag to buy. And it meant a lot. And, you know, why do we have so many? Well, it, it, yeah, we have a Boy Scout unit that our church charters, and they're into flags. Who knew? Right? And so they got us uh, a proper uh, Oregon state flag that's on display over there. And over here is the Christian flag, um, which I'm not sure that that ever, like, had, you know, some, some particular infantry that it represented. Well, but we all sang about it in VBS, right? I'm in the Lord's Army, so I guess that's us. And then next to it, you might wonder what that one is. That's the City of Salem flag. How many of you never knew we had a flag for the city of Salem? Right there it is. Our, our scout troop went down to the city council and they were working on some civic merit badge and these were kind of premiered and they gave one to our troop and so it sits over there. And at their scout meetings, they just do the official parade in and salute the flag and all that stuff. And, and do we do that because that is somehow equal with the worship of the people of God? Answer, no. This is culture. Uh, when I go to a church in another country, I expect to see their culture in their worship service. In fact, I'd probably be disappointed if I didn't. How many of you have had a chance to like, be in a worship service in Mexico ever? Yeah, is that not just the funnest thing ever? 
and we go because we love the culture. Uh, the, the culture in the Cuban church is there. The culture in Israel, the culture down in South America, places that I have seen. I expect that, and hence it's part of it. And today is a cultural day. And so we thank our veterans, and uh, we proudly display the flag, not as an act of worship, but because this is our culture, and it is appropriate here. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to take it and open it to the book of Jeremiah. Uh, we have been working our way through a study in Jeremiah, an anchor in the chaos. We're not covering every passage, uh, but we are covering a number of key and powerful passages. And the last time we were in Jeremiah, we looked at chapter 18, which was the story of the potter and the clay, where we saw that God himself was the potter. We are the clay on the potter's wheel. And God, because he is sovereign, has the right to shape and make of us what he will. And the pot doesn't get to argue with the potter about what the potter has made of them. What an awesome spiritual truth for us to embrace. The, the, the metaphor of pottery continues into chapter 19. This would be an example where Jeremiah is not following time sequence because chapter 18 and chapter 19 did not happen together. But when the book was put together, these shared that theme, and so the book was compiled in such a way that another pottery metaphor is included in chapter 19. And in chapter 19, God tells Jeremiah to take a water jug, a large pottery flask, and to take it before the priests and the people of Jerusalem. And God says, you're to warn them that destruction is coming because my people have disobeyed me. And once you've warned them of that destruction, Jeremiah is going to take that pottery jar, that water flask, and he's going to shatter it on the ground as if to say, this is what's going to happen to you. And look at the last two verses of chapter 19 uh, with me this morning. In Jeremiah 19, verse 14, it says, Then Jeremiah came from Topheth, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy. And he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon this city and upon all its towns all the disaster that I have pronounced against it because they have stiffened their necks, refusing to hear my words. And that carries us exactly into chapter 20, our <clears throat> text for today. Because as we come to chapter 20, in response to Jeremiah's shattering of the water jar, in response to his, to his prophecy of destruction for the people in their cities, what happens is a priest by the name of Pashur, who serves a, a particular role in the priesthood. It's almost like he's the sergeant at arms for the priesthood. He keeps order. He's like the MP of that area. Pasher is going to have Jeremiah beaten and put in stocks. That's the response to Jeremiah's delivering this message from the Lord. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 20. Verses 1 and 2. Now, Pasher the priest, the son of Immer, 
who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. There's some irony here that Pasher, who is called an overseer of the house or a chief officer in the house, the, the, the word beneath it, overseer of the house, is going to uh, deal with Jeremiah, whom God had earlier in this book called as the overseer, same word, the chief officer, the overseer of the nations. Here we have two duly serving officials, one the overseer of the temple area and one the overseer of the nations. And what happens? The overseer of the temple area beats and confines to the stocks the overseer of the nations. A night in the stocks that followed a physical beating. And for what? For speaking God's message to God's people. This was, uh, as I've titled the message this morning, Jeremiah's Dark Night of the Soul. That phrase, Dark Night of the Soul, is attributed uh, to a poem by a 16th century Spanish mystic whom we would call John of the Cross. And in this poem that this mystic wrote, uh, the poem itself written from prison, John of the Cross describes how his imprisonment led to him experiencing spiritual union with God. It was a dear and close and intimate time with the Lord this dark night of the soul. In modern day usage, the dark night of the soul can describe a crisis of faith that some will go through. It can also describe a very difficult or painful period in one's life. And and I'm here to tell you that we've all suffered a dark night of the soul. Perhaps the doctor's diagnosis, uh, maybe the termination of your employment, Maybe the venom that is spewed as a relationship disintegrates. Whatever it is, we've all had a dark night of the soul. And today we're going to see Jeremiah go through the ringer as he hits what seems to be the absolute low point of his ministry. There's nothing in this book that that creeps closer to despair than what we will read today in chapter 20. And in this dark night of the soul, Jeremiah is going to do what so many of us do on our dark nights. Jeremiah is going to blame God. He's going to reject his calling, and he's going to curse the day he was born. When uh, Jeremiah was released from his dark night of the soul, he had another message from the Lord to deliver to Pasher. Pick it up in verse 3 with me of chapter 20. 
Verse 3, the next day when Pasher released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, the Lord does not call your name Pasher, but terror on every side. Now again, there's a play on, on words here in the Hebrew because one of the root meanings of Pasher is fruit on every side. Uh, fruit, that, that sounds delightful, doesn't it? Fruit on every side. Yesterday at the craft fair, I had a little breakfast fruit bowl with like lovely scoops of watermelon and apples and grapes. And there's just nothing bad about that, amen? Fruit on every side. Yay, Lord, give me that. But no, Jeremiah, who is speaking to Pasher, and he says, hey, Pasher, which means fruit on every side, you have a new name. It's this, terror on every side. I'm sure that Pasher preferred the first, okay? Nobody likes the notion of terror on every side. He, uh, Jeremiah continues in verse 4, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive to Babylon, and you shall strike them down, and shall strike them down with the sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city, all of its gains, its prized belongings, all the treasures of the king of Judah into the hand of their enemies, who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die, and there you shall be buried, and you and all your friends to whom you've prophesied falsely. It's an interesting declaration here because for some time in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah as God's prophet to rebuke the nation for its disobedience has said an enemy is coming, an enemy from the north, unnamed, an enemy from the north. Not until we get to this passage is the unnamed enemy from the north identified. And the enemy from the north is Babylon. And we know about the Babylonian captivity of the Israelites. It is a famed captivity. But only here do we find it revealed. It's fascinating that from this point in chapter 20 through the end of Jeremiah, you're going to hear Babylon not less than 200 times where God is going to say over and over again, judgment is coming. My tool of judgment on you will be that wicked nation to the north, Babylon. So Jeremiah has revealed something significant in our text. This prophecy is important, not just for the nation, but for Pasher and his friends and family in specific, who Jeremiah says will die by the sword or will die in captivity. Why? Because Pasher was part of a conspiracy of falsehood. Pasher lied. You can read this in chapter 14 of Jeremiah. Pasher lied to the nation and rebutted Jeremiah's prophecy. When Jeremiah said a nation from the north will come and we will be destroyed and we will be taken away, and Pasher said, no, no, no. That's not true. We will dwell in safety. We will continue forever. We are God's kingdom and nothing will change it. It was all a lie. 
It was a lie that was shared by Judah's leaders, by the prophets of Judah, the priests of Judah, the wise men of Judah, the king of Judah, and Pasher was lockstep with them in this conspiracy. And so God reveals their punishment. And after delivering God's message, which is concluded here in verse 6, the remainder of chapter 20 we will see Jeremiah's lament. Now, lament is a particular type of literature. Lament is something that can be a bit foreign to us, but lament is where one pours out their heart. It's where angst and heaviness flow from the mouth. It's where you get honest about the feelings you have, and instead of being polite and covering them up, you just let them go. You cry out to God in honesty of what you're really feeling. This is the nature of lament. There are psalms of lament that cry out, Lord, why have you forgotten me? Now, they know that God hadn't forgotten them, but it felt like God had forgotten them, and so they put that into words. Why have you forgotten me? That's lament. It's where we cry out, God, I hate this. God, if this is my lot, take me out of this life. Lament is a particularly significant form of literature, and what we're going to see in verses 7 through the remainder of the chapter is Jeremiah's lament. This is his outcry to God. His angst and his pain are going to churn together, and then they're going to erupt in brutal honesty to God. And this is the kind of honesty, to be fair, that makes us uncomfortable. We are very prim and proper folk in these days. And there are just certain things you should never say to God, and there are certain attitudes that you should keep hidden behind the curtain and never let out. Whether you feel them or not, certainly don't let anyone see them. I was talking with someone this week who was talking about someone in their family, and they said, you know, they're very New England. And, and that was a special kind of keep it behind the curtain, all right? You've heard people say, well, how very British of you. That's another special kind of keep it down, keep it stuffed. Let's present well and look right. Doesn't matter what's happening on the inside. But I'm here to tell you that biblical lament cares nothing about hiding any of the ugliness. Let's just put it on the table and call it what it is. And because of that, a few of us are at ease in the form of lament. We ask, can you talk to God that way? Where's that humble decorum that God deserves? And in this way, what Jeremiah reveals in his raw, pained response to God is a truth that you and I need to hear. Listen to this. God can handle your emotions. Somebody say, amen. God can handle your angst. He can handle your anger. If you feel it, you think he doesn't know that's what's going on inside? And yet we tend to so often keep a proper exterior and in a sense are inauthentic to what's happening on the inside. Understand this, God can handle 
our rudeness and our accusations and our pain, and he will do so without ever flinching. So the question is, what does this kind of brutal honesty with God look like? And with that, I'd like to uh, begin looking at some lessons that this passage is going to give for us. Lessons from suffering. Write this down. The first lesson that Jeremiah is going to share with us is this, that suffering has a way of carrying us into the place of prayer, of prayerfulness. Jeremiah finds himself in danger, which leads him to God. And and what happens is he begins to hear. See, the next day, Pasher let him out of the stocks. It's not super clear what the stocks were. We picture some kind of Middle Ages thing, and it probably wasn't that. It could have been a very tiny room that they crammed someone in, like just barely big enough for a body to go in and shut it where you couldn't hardly move. And then you spend the night with not being able to move in a hard, uncomfortable place. It could be the stocks does have a root meaning of twisting. So maybe it's that they had to twist the person just right to get them in this confined space. Whatever it is, it certainly doesn't sound like your Serta or sleep number bed uh, for the night. And I think that when they let him out the next day, he was a wreck. He just, everything hurt. And, and he bore the fact that he was suffering not because he did anything wrong. So that had this whole emotional weight on him. And what we find is not only does he have all that, but it seems like Best I can tell, Jeremiah hears whispering going on there in the place near his confinement where the other priests were walking about the temple and everyone was buzzing about Jeremiah who had just been let out of the stocks. Now look at verse 10 with me. I'm going to jump down a few. But I see it here. Jeremiah says in verse 10, For I hear many whispering. Well, what are they whispering? Terror is on every side. Now, wait a minute. That was the name that Jeremiah gave to Pasher. Remember that? Pasher, your name will be terror on every side. What seems to happen is the priests heard that, and they said, well, that doesn't fit him, but it sure fits that guy. Every time he talks to us, it's woe and doom and destruction. Pasher's not terror on every side. You, Jeremiah, you're terror on every side. He says, I hear many whispering terror on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him, say all my close friends, watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. All of it was vicious. Insults. The hurt of words. Yes, I know that verbal abuse may not seem very serious compared to a good beating and a night in the stocks, but eventually ridicule starts to take its toll. And Jeremiah in this moment is feeling despised and rejected, even by his friends. Even those he thought were his closest friends. And this is only magnified if we jump back up 
to the beginning of our passage in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Jeremiah begins his lament, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. When Jeremiah looks at God and says, Lord, you have deceived me. The question is, is that true? And the answer is no. God has not deceived him, but from this emotional response. Now listen, to make this even more visceral, the word deceived is actually a word that is used of uh, seduction. Like it kind of has a lascivious nature to it. It's as if Jeremiah is saying to God, you seduced me, you wronged me, you enticed me into that which I should not have done, which has an edge to it. You, <laughs> we're prim and proper. You don't talk to God that way. But this is lament, and he's expressing the honesty of his heart. And it seems as though Jeremiah feels that while his friends have betrayed him, that even God is part of his own betrayal. But I find it important that the whole passage of lament in verse 7 begins with these two powerful words, O Lord. This is prayer. O Lord. This is Jeremiah talking to God. And that is where a lesson lies for you and I. Because when we are suffering, when we are aching and feeling betrayed and backstabbed, and even in our heart of hearts, we honestly feel like God has done us wrong, the absolute first thing we ought to do is to cry out, O oh Lord. I put a couple verses in your notes that show this behavior in other portions of Scripture. In Psalm 50, God says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. The day of trouble has come for Jeremiah. What does Jeremiah do? He says, O oh Lord. James writes, Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. And what does Jeremiah do? He says, O oh Lord. And I know that you know this, church, but I just want to remind you that when life is hard and everything seems wrong, one of the first actions of a godly Christian is to cry out to God and say, O oh Lord. Even if you're in a phase of lament and you don't have composure over your emotions at that moment, I just want to promise you, God can handle that. Like, he's, you're, he's not going to write you off for that. He wants you to come to him, even if you're out of sorts in that moment. I want to read a quote from uh, a little book on prayer called The Power of Crying Out. This book says this, after knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and teaching and studying his word for many years, it was only recently that I made what was for me a life-changing discovery. 
I saw that the Bible makes a distinction between prayer and crying out to God. And what I have noticed since that time is that he will arrange or allow circumstances to arise that seem to have no solution and then do nothing to remove the problem until I cry out and not one second sooner. Each situation seems so hopeless, and sometimes a cry seems so futile. Yet this is precisely the setting God wants in order to demonstrate his loving care and his powerful hand of protection. Sometimes a cry will bring freedom from emotional bondage. In other cases, God will provide healing from a dread disease, help in a moment of grave danger, or clear direction in a season of deep perplexity. In every circumstance, the need to cry out is a humbling reminder of my total inability to accomplish anything significant for God. And the result of crying out is a wonderful demonstration of his supernatural power to achieve all that is needed. I ask you, Christian, when's the last time you cried out to God? When's the last time you really said to him, Lord? Because God gives us permission to take our sufferings directly to him. This is exactly what godly people have done throughout history. This is what Job did as he sat on an ash heap when he lamented the loss of his family. This is what Elijah did when he sat under a broom tree and he wanted the Lord to take his life. This is what David did in the cave when he fled from Saul. This is what Jonah did in the belly of the fish when he ran away from God. And this is what Jesus did when he hung on the cross, crucified to atone for people's sins. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out. And the first lesson for you and me is this. Please don't forget this. When life is hard, when you're suffering, when everything is against you and the wound is real and you feel it most deeply, you must call out to God in prayer even if it's a messy and ugly prayer, because God can handle that. And he invites us to come to him with those needs, even as Jeremiah is doing in our text. The second lesson that we will see him model for us is the fact that life does indeed include seasons of unjust suffering. The next lesson is that Sometimes believers suffer for no good reason. Nothing that they have done. They just suffer for the Lord's sake. Look with me in verse 8. Jeremiah says in verse 8, For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. You know what Jeremiah is saying? God, this is your fault. You made me say those things. You gave me the words to give to your people, and now they call me terror on every side. Why? Because every message that I give seems to be weighed down with woe and loathe and condemnation and destruction. And that is what God assigned Jeremiah to say to his people, God was to blame for Jeremiah's problem. It wasn't his fault that he was being insulted all day long. He just said what God told him to say. 
And although people like Pasher and the other priests love to blame the messenger, the real problem lies with the message. And in this instance, Jeremiah is suffering for the Lord's sake. And as Jeremiah reflects on his problem, the only solution that he can come up with is this. I am not going to speak your message, God, anymore to these people. Look at verse 9. He says, if I say, I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, Jeremiah has contemplated this. I'm just going to stop talking. Lord, the message is too hard. The people hate me. Nobody wants to hear what I have to say. I'm done. I quit. I resign. I'm out of here. Find somebody else. I've done the best that I could, and now I'm going to go away and have my pity party. He says, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name. Now notice what he says. There is in my heart as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. A burning fire. This, this passage has been used through the years by uh, awesome preachers who talk about the joys and the glories of preaching God's message to God's people. And this message is like a fire shut up in my bones. I can't pour it out. I'm here to tell you, that's not what Jeremiah is talking about here. We may want to apply it that way, and that sounds wonderful. Christian ministry is a great thing, but understand this. Jeremiah is finding no joy in this. He wanted to push it down. He wanted to say no to it, but here's what he found. The harder he tried to keep his mouth shut, the more it just spewed out of him. It had to come. God had called him as a prophet. God wasn't going to let him just decide not to do his job. No, son, you're going to actually do what I'm telling you to do. Now, go tell him this. And so he says, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. I couldn't do it. Some of you over-talkers out there know how hard it is to shut your mouth, right? We just have to talk. We got to get those words out. But here's Jeremiah who wanted with everything in him, not because of his personality. He just didn't like being the bearer of bad news again. And yet he says to the Lord, this I understand. Even when I try to push back on what you've called me to do, it just has to come out. Because so works the calling of God. You have to. You have to do it, even if you wish that there were another way. Jeremiah would have given anything to have a very mute ministry among the people of God. But the fire in his bones inevitably blazed forth from his lips. Sometimes, Christian, you are oppressed for speaking up for your faith or for just who you are. You can be overlooked or mocked or dismissed or even persecuted because of your faith. 
This is where Jeremiah is, his dark night of the soul, stinging from the pain of unjust punishment. And why? Because he delivered God's truth and the people didn't like it, so they hated him. This is where the gospel of grace meets us in our pain. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have faced mockery and derision and hostility in the workplace because of who you are and what you believe and stand for and maybe because of what you've said. And we just need to understand that Jesus warned us that this would be the way it is in this world. In John chapter 16, in your notes, I put these words of Christ. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, persecution, derision. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And so what do we do in the midst of unjust suffering? Well, Jeremiah takes to heart what he was suffering. And as he poured out his pain in prayer, in brutal, honest lament, he also does this next thing. He praises God. Look with me at verse 11. He says, but the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. I, this is the English standard. I, every time I read that this week, the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. I want to say it with a Scottish accent, right? Dread warrior. The, the NIV is maybe a little more helpful here. The NIV says, the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. That's what that means. Jeremiah says, the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. What does Jeremiah do in the midst of his pain and his lament and his brutal honesty and outcry? Well, he cries out a statement of faithful truth. He says, God, you're in control, and you are with me, and you are a mighty warrior. See, Jeremiah knew that the Lord was with him even though he felt like the Lord was far away. The prophet knew that the Lord was strong even though he felt like God was powerless against these taunts of his enemies. He knew that the wicked would be defeated even though it looked like they were winning. And so the prophet boldly confessed that God would save him. Notice verse 12. O Lord of hosts who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you I have committed my cause. Jeremiah did not take matters into his own hands, but he committed it to the Lord. He prayed that he would be vindicated while his enemies were being punished. Jeremiah closed his worship his, uh, uh, declaration in prayer and praise into actual song. Look at verse 13. He says, sing to the Lord, 
Praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of the evildoers. And he was preaching to himself right here because he would say, I am the needy and they are the evildoers. And praise the Lord, he has delivered me. This is what we have to do, folks, when we suffer. When we suffer, we need to pray and we, we need, need to recognize that unjust suffering is part of this life and we need to glorify God in the midst of it and be able to say to him, Lord, you're in control and you've called me to this and you're with me in this and as hard as this is, this is not the end because you are with me. In your notes, I put Psalm 91. Look at this beautiful verse. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. It is tempting to end this lament with Jeremiah's psalm of praise. But the dilemma is that's not how Jeremiah chose to end it himself. And because we believe that the Bible should be taken as it comes to us, this time we're gonna take it as it comes and it's gonna end on a really depressing note. And we'll see here this fourth lesson that sometimes suffering will lead us to the hard questions of life. I want to begin reading at verse 14. After his exuberant praise of God, he continues his lament, cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, a son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb? To see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? What's the hard question that Jeremiah asks after praising God? He said, God, why was I even born? I wish I was never here. It would be better had I not survived pregnancy in my mother's womb. And again, this is the boldness and raw angst of lament coming out here. There's such a mood swing from the crescendo of praise to the valley of cursing because despair is stubborn. It's an evil taskmaster. And Jeremiah plunges from the heights of praise to the depths of despair. And you and I ought to recognize that this kind of schizophrenic confusion is often the nature of our Christian lives because we too easily forget what we know and we fix our eyes on what we see and what is so unhelpful in some moments. Because the truth of the matter is this, Jeremiah already knew the answer to the question. 
Why was I born? Well, God told him the answer in the beginning of the book. God said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. See, Jeremiah is tracing his trouble back to the womb. But the problem with that, he didn't go back far enough. Because God said, I knew you before that moment. And before you took up life in the womb, I knew you and I called you to be my prophet to the nations. And God said, I have a purpose for your life, Jeremiah, that goes back to the beginning of time. And this prophet needed to be reminded that from all eternity, God had set him apart for salvation and for ministry. And some of us may be in the midst of a dark night of the soul ourselves, or if not, if everything is awesome right now in your life, then your dark night is right around the corner. Good news for you. Because this is life. And the next time you find yourself in your dark night of the soul, I pray that you will remember the lessons that Jeremiah has shown us. We need to remember that just as God called him from before the womb, God has done so for us. Look in your notes at the bottom of the page, Ephesians chapter 1. I want to close with this reminder. God says to us, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. You will not endure the dark night of the soul well if you don't know the Lord personally. That's why Jeremiah lived a long and faithful life, even though it was hard. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, as we look at this image, it's a hard passage, and Jeremiah is raw and real, and I pray that that speaks to us so that we might be more authentic with you when we're hurting knowing that you can handle whatever we bring. And I pray that you will help us to realize that when we feel those things, like Jeremiah, we need to pray. And we need to recognize that sometimes the suffering that comes our way is just part of life on earth. Not because you don't like us. And I, I, I pray that like Jeremiah, we would remember to praise you as God, even when our feelings rail against all that we have known and loved about you. And Lord, as we deal with our own hard questions in those moments, I pray that you, by your spirit, would draw us close because we need you in those moments. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I would say to you this, if you're here and you've not put your faith in Christ, you've not committed to him in your heart, that that decision you need to make is what makes the difference on how you will navigate the dark days of tomorrow. And I just urge you, 
If you've not trusted in Christ, you need to. I just plead with you, trust in Christ, believe in him. And you can do that even as we close in prayer now by in your heart praying this prayer along with me. And I, I, I urge you to do it if you've not done it before. Say to him, God in heaven, Lord, I thank you that you have helped me to see that the hard things in life are actually part of your plan for me. And Lord, if I'm gonna go through those hard things well, I need your help. And so I come to you, Lord, this morning to confess that I'm a sinful person who has walked away from you over and over and over again. And I'm asking you, God, to forgive me for my selfishness and my sinfulness. And I pray that you would change that about me I thank you for Jesus, your son, who died on the cross to pay the penalty of my sin. I believe in that, and I thank you for that gift. I believe that he rose again on the third day, proving his victory over sin, proving he was God himself. I believe that, Lord. And I'm asking this morning, Father, that you would receive me and help me to live differently and to live for you from this day on. Help me learn, Lord, what you have for me. In the name of Jesus, I pray. And all God's people said, amen. If you prayed that prayer, I hope you'll use one of the cards and tell me who you are and you can give it to me or drop it in the offering box so that we can help you follow up. Joel, let's uh, close in worship. Please stand with us one more time.